Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. Good afternoon, and thanks for joining us for this event on the Summer of Climate Shocks. I'm Stephanie Siegel. I'm a senior fellow here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And we're convening a somewhat unusual panel for us here today. We're relying solely on the expertise uh, that we have here in-house, which is quite considerable, to talk to a number of our experts on the issue of climate and how it's impacting and seen through the lens of their sectors. I will, in just a moment, introduce them a bit more formally, but let me give you just two minutes by way of backdrop as to why we're convening this event. The event's called the Summer of Climate Shocks, and that's because we've all just gone through a summer that actually feels a little bit different than in the past. We know that we had three summer months that each represented records as far as temperatures um, uh, in excess of anything that we've experienced before. We know that water temperatures off the coast of Florida exceeded 100 degrees um, for a few days. Again, uh, a record-breaking number um, and implications of that for life and coral um, around the coast of Florida. And then, of course, the forest fires. We've had a number of forest fire events um, this summer including uh, the forest fires in Canada, which notwithstanding the fact that it's outside our borders had very major impacts here in the United States, including the dubious distinction that a number of US cities actually had the worst air quality of anywhere in the world because of the particulate matter from these forest fires. So it felt different, but in convening this group, and I'll give credit here to Steve Morrison, Um, he kind of raised the question, are we looking at a series of events that are an exclamation point or a thunderclap? And what he meant by that, are these events basically exclamation points on events that were very predictable, and in fact, climate models have actually predicted would come to pass, and so they have. So yes, these are extraordinary events, but they're not necessarily unexpected. Or are they a thunderclap in the sense that they really have fundamentally changed the way that we're seeing the moment and how we might react to climate change? So that's the question that I want to pose to my colleagues here. Let me just do a very brief introduction of them, and then I'll turn to the questions. First, just going in alphabetical order to my immediate left, Joseph Maycutt is the director of the Energy Security and Climate Change Program here at CSIS where he leads the program's work to understand the geopolitics of energy and climate change and ensure a global energy transition that is responsive to the risks of climate change 
and the economic and strategic priorities of the United States and the world. Next to him is Steve Morrison. He's senior vice president at CSIS, where he directs our Global Health Policy Center. And since 2018, led the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security, which sought to address the evolving challenges of COVID-19 and the tests of US leadership at home and abroad. Next to him, last but not least, is Caitlin Welsh. Caitlin directs the Global Food and Water Security Program at CSIS, where she analyzes the drivers and consequences of food and water insecurity around the world, including for US national security. So um, we have great colleagues and great expertise here on stage. I wanna go ahead and pose the first question, which is pretty much um, the, the personal um, aspect of what we're discussing here. How did each of you experience this summer some of the events that I mentioned at the top and this question of whether or not what we've all gone through in the summer is the exclamation point, of course this is happening, it was predicted to happen, or the thunderclap, no, there's something fundamentally different here. And let me just go in, in order here, um, Joseph, to you first. Well, thank you um, for hosting the conversation, and Steve, great idea. Um, it's hard for me to say, right? So aligned from my background is I spent most of my time in graduate school studying climate science. A lot of these things are things that we've predicted. Scientists in other fields from the ones I studied were predicting. Uh, but it does feel that there's this like sense of momentum, right? In the, the, like the gathering effects of climate change, our ability to perceive the role of climate in these different events. Um, and, and so even if the physical system is relatively stable in time, right? It responds to inputs the same way um, throughout time. Human systems don't. And I think the real key question here is not, is this some major difference in the physical system we're dealing with, but is there a gonna be a series of political responses mm -hmm. that are gonna be important for later global outcomes or even local outcomes? Um, for myself, I have to say, you know, in a somewhat small way, like wildfires in Canada driving air quality in here in Washington to historically bad levels was like noticeable. You know, walking around the street, going for a run, riding your bicycle to work became a difficult task for a lot of people. It's visible in a way that the sort of CO2, atmospheric CO2 concentrations are not. Uh, I took a incredible photograph of the Capitol as I was riding up Pennsylvania Avenue one early one morning on my way in here to work. And it's, it's just shrouded in haze. Um, really a remarkable event. Now, briefly, you know, Canada had fire weather this year. That was part of what was behind that massive, those massive fires. Um, we can talk a little bit about the climate science of that for later, but I think that was the thing that really struck me most uh, most over the summer. All right, Steve, same question to you. You know, the opinion here in the United States uh, has been pretty divided. I mean, a majority of people acknowledge the importance of climate change and the implications it's having, but when you get down to how much should this be a priority of government, uh, it's less than 50%, I feel that way, and maybe three in 10 who really feel this is, this is not, uh, doesn't warrant being a priority. And so one question is, outside of those who are experts like, like Joe, Caitlin, who are working these issues, 
for, for the, our population, the question is, did this begin to register differently with our population? And will we see some changes in, in the way people view this? And it's a little early to say, but anecdotally and uh, just perceptually, I had a sense in day-to-day in -day interactions with quite a diverse set of people where I would go out of my way and ask simple questions about how people, that the combination of things, the terror that was seen in Lahaina, the fact that people woke up, 60 million people were affected by the smoke on the East Coast, unprecedented. It's no longer just what happens in Australia and California. Uh, and when you add it up, okay, the big, big fires in Australia a few years ago were 19 million acres, and that was kind of unthinkable. The fires in Canada are approaching 40 million acres. So the engine of change in our proximity is there, just like the, the, the oceans going into monumentally hot temperature ranges also sort of suggested in our midst are these engines that are gonna drive extreme weather back in onto us. Phoenix, 27 consecutive days at 110 degrees, burn units full of people who had stumbled. Um, and then the data around uh, those that excess deaths and heat strokes, and particularly in the hottest environments in the United States. And plus this was going on in Europe as well, and it was going on outside of the United States in various places. So I did feel that an element of fear and discomfort was settling in culturally within the United States that we hadn't seen before. Even very conservative uh, politicians who might have defended the notion that this was something we had to be skeptical of the data, we had to worry about whether the media had a self-interest in this or whether the scientists had a self-interest in this, those sorts of critiques. After the pain and suffering that was experienced by people that were near us, that evoked a certain amount of fear, I saw a, a reserve, I saw a, 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 an element of hesitation and discomfort that people were not as inclined to sort of make these arguments that seemed trivial in the face of what was happening. So I do think that in some respects, at an emotional and popular level, this probably qualifies as a thunderclap, but we're gonna have to see the, 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 the survey work Kaiser is conducting, Pew is conducting, others are conducting that show this. And we, it'll be very interesting to see what the data shows around excess mortality, uh, uh, the spur. I mean, we saw, we know that in Europe when we've had similar patterns, excess mortality was 70,000 deaths in one summer in 2003, 61,000 last year. We, we know innately that those numbers in the United States, particularly in the, in the most impacted urban centers are gonna be quite high. So I, I hear kind of in both of your answers, there's not so much a debate as to whether or not we're experiencing a changing climate. The question is, what do we do about it? And we're gonna to get to that in the second round when we get to some of the kind of views from a sectoral perspective. But Caitlin, let me pose the same question to you and kind of your personal experience with the summer and 
for you, whether this feels like to be expected or something more consequential than that? Yes, thank you. Um, so uh, this summer I found myself um, reflecting on a conversation I had with one of my brothers um, within the past 10 years where um, I was lamenting the fact that we would not live long enough to experience the effects of climate change ourselves. And if only we would live long enough then uh, to experience those effects personally, then we actually would um, unite behind um, sufficient action to address climate change. And I was looking back at that conversation this summer um, and reflecting on how wrong I was um, about the fact that we would, in fact, experience the effects, how soon after that conversation I would experience those effects, um, and also whether or not those, those effects would spur unified climate action, which at least in our own political system we're not seeing. Um, uh, another way that I experience this is that um, my own son is um, one going on two years old, and um, I, I certainly didn't predict that we would have bad air quality days that would prevent him and his classmates from from playing outside. I know that we have all all have children, and they all they all are um, um, exposed to these same conditions. Um, when it comes to my position on whether this is an uh, exclamation point versus a thunderclap, um, certainly it's a departure from the norm. I'm um, I'm. Uh, you know, when it comes to air quality, um, something that we in this own in this city haven't experienced in the past. Um, I don't think that it's reached the level of a of quite of a thunderclap um, yet, and um, and I think that I'll I'll um, probably use the same framing to talk about the way that I see those in the food security and water security community um, thinking about this as well. More of an exclamation point than a thunderclap, but happy to return to those things in a in a moment. Great, great. I mean, all of you and your answers kind of anticipated some of the following questions, but I, I do wanna now switch. I mean, you're all incredibly nice and interesting people to talk to, but you're here because of your sectoral expertise. So let me go ahead and, and move on to that. And, and Joseph, I'm gonna start with you again. Um, so you're director of energy security and climate change program. I think we think of, okay, energy sector, mm -hmm. but there's no real single energy sector as we're talking about energy transition. Right. Um, so as far as what this moment looks like and thinking about climate change, decarbonization paths, right. where do you think the industry is? Where do you think the industry is, is going? Sure. Let me, let, I think actually the energy sector is a perfect place to kind of dive into how we should think about these challenges, right? So climate change is happening. Like this summer it provides no other evidence other than like the, the effects of climate change are, are, are here. They can be sometimes ambiguous and they can sometimes really smack you in the face. And we're gonna have to live with that as long as we are emitting greenhouse gas emissions and after we stop emitting greenhouse gas emissions. And so we're, we're faced with like what I, you know, every, there's a lot of dual challenges in the world, but we're faced with a challenge on two timescales. For the remainder of our career, for Kaylin's son's life, we got to deal with the effects that, that excess greenhouse gas concentrations are going to play out on society. We have to get way better at providing public goods, managing fires, keeping grids online, protecting public health. We have to get better at all that stuff because climate change is going to force us to. Or, or we're going to see catastrophe. This, the second piece is trying to reduce this risk over the long term, and that's reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We're going to work really mightily at that. I think the industry is making progress. Critics will say it's not fast enough. 
Uh, people in the industry are saying we're working as hard as we can. We can delve into both the economic and the political challenges of moving away from greenhouse gas emissions or controlling them. But we know it's going to be a multi-decadal process to provide all the energy services, the goods and, and things that people need for a growing global economy. Um, and while we, we have to do both of these things at the same time, work on reducing emissions as quickly as we feasibly can and live and find ways to live and thrive uh, under, under a changing climate. And you're, you're, again, anticipating a question about, you know, what, what are the trade-offs potentially when it comes to the pace of the transition um, and kind of who should the public believe in some respects as we think about what the potential trade-offs are. I say the public, it's the public who elects politicians that are actually having to decide and make policy judgments about this. And so I hope we'll have time to kind of get your views on who are kind of the most reliable voices, who can a public actually look to on some of these issues. But um, let me then go, Steve, to you on the sectoral piece. You know, we've done some work together on COVID-19 pandemic, um, and you're very well placed in terms of how the global health community is thinking about um, these issues, these global issues, pandemics, now climate. Um, what are you seeing um, among your colleagues as far as how the community is viewing climate as an issue and what their approach might be to dealing with climate change? Thank you. Um, it's, it's, it's very mixed and somewhat contradictory what you see in the field. You know, the COVID set, things, set many, many things back in the health field, including there was already pre-pandemic, there was movement towards acknowledging the intersection of climate and health and beginning to shift institutions, create new capacities. HHS created the Climate Change and Equity Office and gave it the authority to begin tracking. CDC created a very similar effort. We saw the COP process dedicated day to health. This was a big change. We saw the changes in the World Bank. Elsewhere, there's been more, much more talk about the fact that there's major crit critical scientific gaps in understanding how extreme heat actually impacts the human body at a cellular level. There's, a, there's, there's been these debates and a change of consciousness. There's an awareness that equity is a huge issue on the health impacts, depending on where you work, where you live, what school you're in, uh, that the extreme heat in particular uh, massive impacts that we don't have very good data in this. So that's, there's been a shift of consciousness. There's, the issues have risen up, but I also think that there's a certain hesitation and resistance to embracing this. And some of that is that um, the field is seen as divisive and polarizing, polarized and coming out of COVID uh, those that have been working in health security, uh, pandemic preparedness and the like, are acutely sensitive to the fact that the, the, a great toxicity has settled in around these issues and that uh, there's certain amnesia and trauma, 1.1 million people dead. Um, and so moving into a new field with a bit uncertainty around what solutions are scalable at what cost and are we going to just intensify these divisions 
has led to a certain hesitation and caution in this. And we need to get beyond that. We need to somehow move beyond that. So I think we're at a promising moment of an uptick of consciousness and attention. And those who are expert in this, who have been working these issues, there are several people. We've had a big Lancet commission, the Countdown Commission. We've had some of the IPPC reporting on the health consequences and the like. So there's been a framework that is advanced. There's better data coming forward, but still quite a bit to do. And I think we have to overcome some of the political hesitation uh, in, 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 in embracing this. We don't see, for instance, the, there will be a new, glo- new national global health, um, uh, global health security strategy issued sometime this fall. I don't expect it's gonna say much about these issues. The national biodefense strategy said very, very little about this. You know, if you look at the, the moments when at a national level trying to describe the environment of, what, of where we are, these issues were very faintly reflected. Because of the sensitivity to them. That, and I think there's just a, there, that they, everyone was preoccupied with trying to understand the next steps in the post-COVID moment, what had to happen. And they're also trying to play catch up and return to pre-pandemic levels on all of the other massive investments in global health that, are, that were set back and, and regressed in this period. So there's, a, there's this urge, and then there's the polarization and toxicity that everyone's coping with. So it, those complicate the, rea- the response significantly. And Caitlin, I know you and I have talked now for a while about the issue of food and water security as relates to climate. Your program has done some really incredible work, in particular on the water security side of things. But if you could just kind of comment the sectoral perspective here and how the issue is seen from professionals in your space. Sure. Um, I I think that the picture is mixed. Um, We've had major shocks to global food security and global food systems over the past several years. Most immediately this summer, it was India's ban on rice exports and then Russia's exiting the Black Sea Grain Initiative that shocked global agricultural markets. Despite that fact, global food prices actually fell July to August this year. It was just reported within the last couple of days. Global rice prices rose um, significantly but global wheat prices fell, global grain prices fell overall, and global food prices fell, generally speaking. Um, So we're not at the same moment we were in 2022 when global food prices reached an all-time high upon Russia's invasion of Ukraine, or when the COVID pandemic hit, disrupting uh, uh, food trade, um, disrupting incomes, et cetera, um, driving food insecurity to an all-time high. Um, What I do see, though, is, um, is recognition that climate change is affecting other aspects of food systems generally. Um, I see discussion of the fact that trade routes are being disrupted on the Mississippi River and the Panama Canal. Um, We see um, discussion of not only the abiotic impacts of climate change on agricultural production being extreme weather, um, extreme temperatures, changing precipitation patterns, et cetera, but also biotic impacts um, increasing in, um, in, in pests, for example, that affect uh, that, that, that reduced uh, crop output, for example, in Afghanistan right now. Um, we actually even see new information about the effect of extreme heat on food insecurity at the household level. Um, when temperatures 
reach extremes. Um, uh, people can work less and their output is lower, so they have more difficulty um, accessing food at those times. So um, again, overall, uh, I don't sense a, a high level of panic. Um, and, and, and when I have over the past few years, it really, it's been related to other things, but I do see recognition at other levels um, of impacts of climate change. So I, I know I previewed some of my questions to you a bit earlier, but I'm going to switch it up a little bit. I, I think initially the question was, you know, what obstacles do you see to uh, taking more of an interdisciplinary approach to the topic of climate? I guess my question, if I'm going to edit myself here, is do we need to take an interdisciplinary approach when it comes to climate? Is it important, for instance, that you, Joseph, are in touch with Caitlin on the issue of food security if what you're really interested in is whether or not green hydrogen is viable in the next generation, right? Do, do we need to be taking an interdisciplinary approach to the challenge of climate change? Um, so let me pose that question and throw it out there to anybody who wants to answer it first. I mean, like, I like working with Caitlin. And, and in fact, earlier this year, our two programs worked on a piece um, on alternative proteins, mm -hmm. right? So lab manufactured or, you know, sort of fake meat or burgers. Mm -hmm. Not even fake, right? Lab manufactured meat or these sort of like meat, meat similar products. Um, and and the, the point of our research study was not how much can these reduce greenhouse gas emissions because people eat those, will eat those instead of less beef. But instead, like, well, what, what if, if the big market for those grows because countries pursue them or they, they meet consumer desires in a world where climate is changing, what are the implications for food security, mm -hmm. right? And I think we actually had a very productive collaboration trying to think through how do you ask this question in a rigorous and clear way? Likewise, Steve talked about the scientific need to understand public health and its inter interface with climate. You know, we can, it's relatively easy to make a map of what temperature extremes might look like 5, 10, 15, 20 years hence. The interesting intellectual exercise is trying to figure out, well, what does that mean for people and what do we do about it? You know? and, and in that context, I think there's a lot of opportunity for, for interdisciplinary work. Likewise, we can think about the energy system, right? We, we did a project on resilience last year because our power sector in particular is under a lot of strain from changing generation mixes, increased demand, changing climactic conditions. And one of the, one of the threats we looked at was uh, sufficient backup power at hospitals. So when you have extreme weather events, like a large a heat wave as an example, if that knocks the grid down, can you still offer public health services to enough people and quickly enough um, on the backup power you have? There's lots of interesting interactions where the kinds of risks we all work on really do relate to each other strongly. Um, in terms of the, the overarching question for this conversation, what happened this summer, um, I think it's not only about the real-world impacts that we experienced, but also about some of the really excellent reporting um, that we've seen and some of some reports that were published this summer. Um, one piece that comes to mind was from the New York Times about the the clean energy transition is arriving faster than we think, or something along those lines, but I'm guessing you saw it, Joseph. Um, but it's about that, how the energy sector in the United States is transitioning far faster than we had anticipated. Um, and I look forward to the day when we can see a report such as that about the transition of agriculture and food systems to reliance on clean energy. 
And if that's going to be the case, then that necessarily involves collaboration across sectors because that's going to take um, that's going to take reducing emissions um, uh, uh, by fertilizer producers, um, by uh, those who design tractors, by those who create food packaging. Um, uh, all sorts of collaboration will have to happen in order to achieve that outcome. So yes, I do. I do think that necessarily this involves um, collaboration, as you, as you said. Well, we. A few years ago, during the period of the massive fires in uh, seasonal fires in Australia, we we partnered with Sarah Lanislau and with an authority who had run a commission looking at the California fires, along with the Australian who was leading the the way in thinking about what the broad impacts were of of these massive fires. And, and it, it proved to me at that time that there was a, a great synergy, a great value to bringing folks from these different disciplines to talk about this common problem. Um, I didn't mention one important personal thing, which is my sister lives in Sonoma. She and her husband live in Sonoma, California, and they were burned out of their home three successive years. And um, after the campfire, killed about 85 people. Uh, I visited right after the fires had stormed through the neighborhood and, and walked the, the land where the fires had come over the hills and burned people out and the like. And it really was a, a, a bit of a wasteland and a traumatized environment where you could tell that mental health issues were terribly important here. You could tell that economic recovery was on the table, that there was lots of displacement. The housing shortage, which had been huge before, was now critical. Uh, and, and this is an area that got pounded not just by fires, but by extreme heat and extreme rain. So there was, there was this dynamic. And I think that, you know, as this summer was unfolding, I was talking to, them, to my sister and her husband about, you know, how they were seeing this after having, you know, basically had to make massive adjustments in their lives in order to protect themselves. Um, and, and seeing how they felt about this. And I think that that was another barometer in terms of the thunderclap uh, uh, exclamation point thing. But yes, the, it has to be multidisciplinary. We have to figure out how to work across our stovepipes. I think we are making some progress here today. And, um, and, we've, and we've got a record of doing that. I mean, uh, Global Health started, our program here started as the task force on HIV AIDS with Senators Frist and Kerry. And we started it by design as something that was going to leverage many different disciplines and capabilities within CSIS. And, and that proved to be a terribly important lesson in how we could get good results. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of talking at the micro level about kind of the interconnectedness between the fire, homelessness, mental health. And I'm kind of reminded in listening to climate, climate scientists um, that they talk about how the systems are all connected to one another. So even if you're trying to focus more narrowly on a particular aspect, inevitably, there's going to be a connection to something else and you're not actually able to see the full picture unless you have that sort of scope to understand how higher 
water temperatures in Florida may ultimately impact, you know, the ability of fishermen in the Northeast um, to fish. So just a reminder, I guess, of the connectedness of, of this issue. Can I jump in there? Actually, yeah. momentarily, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, one of the things that people struggle with is trying to identify, okay, what was the role of climate in that event? What was the role of climate in this event? And that is actually a difficult intellectual exercise often. Um, but one I've tried, as I've worked on myself to try and understand my own um, or improve my own understanding, one of the things that has come to me is when you think about this, like this is massive planetary shift, right? And it plays out over a long time. Not every individual event is, is due to climate change, but, but it's, you can look at the last summer and think like, man, this is kind of what it's going to look like, right? So if every event is a little bit, the probability or the likelihood of some outcome is made a little bit stronger because of climate change, you start kind of compiling those around the world, right? You add them all up and you you get this kind of sense, like I use the analogy of it's like popcorn in a, in a skillet, right? A couple of things go off and then it all starts going off at once. And that, that connectedness actually matters, right? Because you're not talking about the weather, <laughs> right? You're not talking about something that's like hot here and cold here in the same year. And so even though those have their own economic or social impacts, they sort of average out. Everybody experiences warming and it's rare to find places where a warming signal is going to be really positive for society. Right. They probably exist, but but globally integrated, this is a massive challenge. And that the Earth system connects us in that way. And what I've also heard from Joseph and others uh, that it's the uncertainty also around it. So you know there will be an impact. The timing of that impact, the severity of that impact, the localization of that impact that is not certain. And so then that then challenges all of us and policymakers to then prepare when you know something's coming, but you don't exactly know what, when, or how big. Um, one of the things, and Caitlin, you, you mentioned this, um, kind of referring to energy as an input to the agricultural sector, um, which kind of gets to the, the question I wanted to pose all of you, again, a sector specific when we're talking about emissions. So if we're saying, Climate change is happening. Um, we already have a certain amount of warming that's kind of baked in the cake at this point. What we're trying to do is reduce emissions to limit the amount of warming so that the most severe impacts don't come to fruition. That then begs the question of where are we in each of your sectors? So each of your sectors actually are sizable emitters, some more than others, but um, where are we when we think about energy, health, food in terms of reducing emissions coming from each of your sectors? And I'll start with you. Um, I think in the energy sector, so like largely the, the source of, of a lot of the challenges that we're facing uh, in the longest time scale, right? So end of this century, I think we're in a really good place. I think that a lot of the barriers that we thought, could we actually get to a net zero emissions environment, which allows us to stop global warming, negative emissions could then allow us to um, reduce it. Um, that seems really feasible. It's just a matter of timing and application of effort and technological progress. Um, on, and, and you see that. When I started working on climate change 10 years ago, we regularly talked about three, four, five, six degrees of global warming. And that's just not what the forecasts show us anymore. 
We're at about, for reference, 1, 1.2, somewhere, mm -hmm. somewhere between those two right now, centigrade. Um, but that, you know, we're not talking about those cataclysmic um, levels of warming anymore. We're still going to look at exceeding, we're still probably looking at right now exceeding the UNFCCC targets of 1.5, 2 degrees centigrade. And, and every ounce of warming we get gets harder to manage. And so we want to keep pushing it down on the short term. I think we have a lot of challenges. It's, it's hard to build enough clean energy in developed economies uh, for a variety of reasons. It's hard to build enough clean energy in developing economies for a different variety of reasons. And we need to be able to do that um, much faster and um, at the same time we're pursuing technological solutions. So I think we, that gives us actually a, a reasonable place from which to make some public policy. Mm -hmm. We have short-term challenges that feel relatively addressable uh, and we have a long-term view toward a net zero economy. And I think that by and large, even, even the, the biggest pieces of the uh, fossil fuel industry are on board with that, with that longer-term vision. You, you referenced something that I don't know that we're going to have time to get to today, but I think it's an important point. We're talking here largely in a U.S. context. It's a global problem, a global challenge, and we need to do work here at home. We absolutely need for the rest of the world to also do work. Otherwise, we don't actually accomplish what our global goals for emissions reduction. So I just wanted to put an exclamation point on that <laughs> point that you just made. Thankfully, we work at the Center for Strategic Correct. and International <laughs> Studies. Yes, good point. Um, so, uh, Steve, as far as the health sector, I don't think we typically think of as being a source of large emissions, but... In fact, in fact, it accounts for a very significant share. What's the percent? Eight percent? Ten percent? I mean, it's and it's not it's not a it shouldn't be a surprise because it's such a huge sector within our own economy. I mean, we're looking at 17, 18 percent of our GDP. It consumes a vast amount of energy. Um, it involves um, um, complicated systems that are that are energy intensive. And so that sector has to transform and transition just like every other sector that, that we're talking about. And I think that shareholders and, you know, we're largely privatized. Uh, we can, the, there, there are means to motivate and incentivize those transitions to happen in an orderly way that hopefully will not raise costs more than, than are bearable at this moment. There will be tensions around that, I'm sure. There's going to be tensions around if we do that, are we going to put a burden back upon the more vulnerable, the least economically able, if in fact the translation of cost is down to, you know, your consumer who is uh, uh, forced to more deeply go out of pocket? I mean, the, we all are familiar with how disgruntled Americans are with high, excessively high uh, medical uh, medicine costs, you know, um, pharmaceutical costs. People don't like this sector in many ways for good reasons because they feel that power is concentrated, it's not responsive on cost levels and the like. And so that will enter any discussion around this. Also, we're talking about you know uh, a sector that has to expand its it, to to meet the needs of of climate change. It's got to deal with rising infectious diseases. We've talked earlier about displacement and mental health consequences and the consequences of extreme heat. So if it's going to be responsive, it's going to have to grow. 
It's going to have to grow and do things that it not done before that sector, which will carry with it energy implications. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, it strikes me, actually, as you're saying that, and I want to go to Caitlin with the same question. I, I think, at least for me, I think about health and food and water security as kind of suffering from the impacts of climate change, not so much as, well, what is the sectoral responsibility for contributing to emissions reduction? I guess maybe that's kind of the question. Does the sector, as far as you know, kind of see a role in reducing emissions in addition to adapting to the warming that we've been talking about? And I think that would be a yes with an exclamation point, <laughs> um, uh, particularly with the um, publication of some um, really impressive data over the past few years that food systems, for example, um, and that's including everything from land use change to, again, fertilizer production, um, running your tractors, refrigerating food, food creating packaging, all those things um, are responsible for over one third, so 34% of greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. Um, so I think that the people in the food security community um, are quite aware of the responsibility of the community to um, to reduce emissions in order to meet our our, um, our greenhouse gas reduction targets. Um, you can look at uh, one initiative that was launched out of um, COP26 as an example, the Aim for Climate Agriculture Innovation Mission for Climate, which was launched by the United States and the UAE. Um, they held a summit this May. Um, they had set a goal to um, achieve $10 billion in commitments, um, I believe within two years, but blew through that and announced $13 billion in commitments as of this May. Um, so I think that there's a, a lot of energy um, um, toward reducing emissions. Um, it was, again, two countries that, that founded the initiative, and it was, it's about 52 countries that are supporting it right now, 500 partners worldwide. Um, and I think that the UAE is, is um, poised to make big announcements, or at least we hope so, at COP this year. Um, that said, I don't necessarily see that energy reflected in domestic politics. Um, as soon as those achievements were announced this May, we saw um, pretty quick backlashes from some politicians um, against this notion that farmers should be responsible for reducing emissions. You see other types of conversation, though, um, uh, acknowledging that we must make agriculture resilient to climate change. We must make it um, more, more water smart. Um, my term, not others, but I hope that it's a term that, that uh, maybe it's a concept that we'll, that we'll see implemented. Um, so you see both things happening, both a, a pushback against this notion that agriculture has to adapt and also recognition that it really must if, if we're going to continue to produce, um, produce food. Yeah, and, and I know I, I discussed this idea a little bit with some of you beforehand, but that's kind of a perfect lead into something I've been thinking about with the framing of a, a trade. Is there a trade-off between climate goals, emissions reduction, and development? A trade-off between emissions reduction and productivity for food? A trade-off between, you know, a company's desire to be a good kind of responsible citizen and its obligation to shareholders to maximize profits. So that's kind of a, a broad heading, but how you think about trade-offs um, when it comes to the climate ambition, but also each sector exists to deliver a service. Um, so uh, your views, I guess, I'll start with Joseph again on the trade-offs there, and, and given time, I'm not sure I'll have a chance to get to this question, but but uh, kind of one level up from that is just the trade-off between climate and development, or at least that framing. 
Is that a fair framing or is that really kind of like a false choice? Um, so I'll start with you, Joseph. It's a very heavy question. Um, I, I think that you know, trade-offs exist in the world, right? Everything has trade-offs involved in it. Um, but in the, in the big picture, is there a trade-off between achieving long-term climate goals, right? Reducing greenhouse gas emissions and, and other big social goals? I don't really think so. When you move stuff around, yes, you're going to impose some costs. Those get challenging at times. They can be offset by other by public policy. Sometimes the, the goods that you provide are better. One of the big stories, the megatrends of the last 10 years is the falling cost of solar panels and uh, batteries, right? Those are a big part of the climate solution. But now that they're also one of the cheapest forms of marginal energy generation in the world, as long as we get the rest of the system right, there's actually a big benefit to using these kinds of things, not just in the cost of energy, but the you know, energy security and, and, a variety, and clean air. There, there's a lot of the benefits that agglomerate. So like the trade-off always seems to be a little bit also like what's on your books, right? What do you care about? Um, and for, and, but for the sort of, when you think about like global public goods, I think we can tackle this problem. Um, we have to make good policy to do that, but it. But I think in the in the in the big sense, uh, the either like the whether it's the investments we're making under on um, clean technology under the bipartisan infrastructure law or our efforts to cut emissions or to make our energy system more resilient, all those do create real benefit. Yeah, and all that honestly resonates a bit with kind of the the trade discussion, discussion around trade over the last kind of 10, 20 years, where at the macro level, you might be better off overall, but the distributional effects are ones where you have kind of winners or lose and losers. And it seems to me that that is, you know, an issue when we're talking about the transition. And I know you know this because the whole topic of just transitions is actually aiming to get at the fact that there are some losers in this transition. We need to figure out a way to kind of compensate for those losses. That's, that's absolutely true. And that's, I mean, just transition re requires hours of its own interrogation. Yes. But, but like one thing I would note is like, you know, one of the big barriers. It's like something I'm worried about. Take the trade analogy, actually, mm -hmm. right? Um, a lot of the way that climate... Uh, or energy transition is marketed is like the system gets so much better, but you, like it actually does have to get better. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, we're making big investments in solar panels and batteries and all those things like the per like it actually has to deliver services. And so if our resilience suffers because our grid planning is poor, we don't have the right mechanisms in place, then that creates a big you know, like political backlash that I think we don't want to have associated with energy transition in the way that we're now seeing with trade. And so that actually calls for us to be way more attentive to immediate services mm -hmm. at the same time we're trying to decarbonize over the long term. Yeah. Delivering. Yeah, exactly. Steve. One comment about uh, reconciling development with um, decarbonization um, in the United States. We've got to deal with populism. We have to deal with the concerns of those who are going to potentially fear the burden that they will bear. Like if we move to uh, 
60% electric vehicles rapidly, right? There's going to be an affordability issue. There's going to be displacement of large numbers of people who repair combustion engines, who sell cars, who, I mean, there's, and, and the, the transformation in terms of creating new economic opportunity through electric vehicles or through other renew, through renewables and like, that will come, that is coming. And you're right, Joseph, that the affordability, the economic benefits that come now are just so much different and it's been so rapid. And I think that's, when you, when you get to this question of are we gonna slip into, into a doomsday, uh, dim doomsday feeling about all of this, it's the technological changes I think that a lot of people point to as, as a source of hope. But I think we have to navigate the sensitivity around individual freedom, around populist fears of what this will mean if we're going to get a broad societal embrace of, of, of this where you're not leaving people feeling like, okay, yeah, that's, that's a great idea, but if, I'm, if I commute 50 miles a day in my rural community out here, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be even more disadvantaged by an economy that since the 2008, 2009 has run the other direction against large segments of our society. In terms of the global south, we all know that uh, there's a resentment of the climate change movement as biased, as a northern biased uh, movement that asks the global south to pay a price for problems they didn't create and potentially forestall economic development. So if you're sitting in Ghana and you've got offshore oil reserves that are suddenly going to put you in put you in the black in terms of your long-term fisc and you can create a sovereign fund and you can you can do things that you hadn't been able to do before how do you engage them about about the making the transition of decarbonizing right it's you're going to see some situations like that more and more uh, but we haven't, our diplomacy has been a little bit lame, I think, in trying to make the case to uh, a very skeptical and somewhat alienated Global South uh, about coming on fully on board. We haven't lived up to our obligations and commitments in several of these COPs. Uh, and, and the solutions that we've put forward have been ones where we've got the access to those technologies much more readily than and others. So I think we have to just deal with all of those, all of those tensions. So Caitlin, I'd like to get you to weigh in on this question as well. Um, but given where the time is, I'm going to kind of wrap that together with my last question to all of you, um, which is uh, given the nature of our discussion, recognizing climate change is happening, the goals of kind of uh, emissions reduction and adaptation are necessities, I think, at this point, across all numbers of sectors. What is your, I guess, wish list for making progress? What are you know, the two to three things that you think are really essential in the near term? Let's frame this around kind of the next 12 months um, where you would like to see policy action. I'll leave it to you if you wanna focus on the domestic or the international or both. Um, but Caitlin, if I can go to you then uh, with this, both the question of the kind of development, climate trade-off and your wish list, um, we'll come back this way and then wrap up. 
Sure. Great. Um, I think in the food security community, there can be this rosy notion that we really don't have to make trade-offs if we do it right, um, if we innovate properly, um, um, et cetera. But I, what we're seeing is that we there really are important trade-offs that have to be made. Um, looking at water use for agriculture, for example, um, some really excellent reporting this summer about um, uh, for example, over-reliance on groundwater, um, in large part due to changing precipitation patterns and, and high temperatures. Um, uh, and when that happens, it means that over-reliance on groundwater is threatening agriculture in the future. There won't be water um, with which to produce food in the future if we continue to use it the way that we're using it right now. Looking at the Colorado River Basin um, water crisis, 55% of water, 55%, is used not just for agriculture, 79% is used for agriculture generally, 55% for animal feed alone. 37% of all water in the Colorado River Basin used for one crop alone for, for, for alfalfa. Um, so to address those crises and water stress, again, related to climate change, um, we really do need to make changes in how we produce food, what we produce, um, and then what we consume as well. So I think that th there are important trade-offs to be made. Um, I don't think that, uh, you know, you know in, in the future, if we were to have this conversation five to 10 years from now, I don't think that we would be assuming that we can consume um, this or, and, and produce the same types of food, uh, the same foods in the same way. I don't think that food prices will be the same. I, think, I don't think that we can assume that we can waste as much food as we have been in the future, ha have been so far. Um, just to link uh, food production to water. Uh, when it comes to my wish list domestically, um, I again, I'm seeing a lot more attention to water use for agriculture. I'd like to see that reflected in the farm bill this year. Um, uh, and I'd like to see us as, as really the world's experts on, um, on water use efficiency for agriculture. Um, as an example um, uh, that, you know, that, that, that we can spread around the world. Um, and then when it comes to, to, you know, to the global stage, um, I'm looking forward to COP28. Um, I, I heard an excellent question recently. Um, will this COP be a, a Paris moment for agriculture? Could there be a major commitment when it comes to agriculture, uh, to food systems emissions reductions um, and greenhouse gas emissions? So um, to, to, two items on my wish list. Um, one is sort of policy mechanics we need for heat and health, heat impacts, um, you know, premature death from heat stroke, um, extreme illness. We have no standard. We have no established medical standard for heat and human health. Uh, we have no way by to judge what's acceptable or not acceptable. So there's a simple step that can be taken here, which is try to get a standard that, that, that is shared uh, uh, internationally. We need much better uh, forecasting and surveillance around the health impacts uh, and much better data. Uh, and we don't have solutions in terms of scaling things effectively. If we really want to take on the fact that people in agriculture, people in construction, that there are populations that are, tend to be lower education, uh, people of color, non-immigrant or in non non-citizens working in migrant jobs and the like, they are suffering um, heat heat impacts, uh, including mortality at upwards of sixty percent the level that the rest of us are experiencing. And so, we need a strategy that says, okay, equity vulnerability is is real. 
And we need to scale solutions that look at occupation, look at homes, look at schools, look at those places where people are now getting harmed, their health is being harmed in the midst of extreme heat. Um, the COP offers an opportunity for doing this as well. There is a dedicated day. In terms of po the politics, it would be nice if we could begin to break down the, 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 the division a bit somehow, to use this moment to shift the debate away from you're a denialist, you know, this kind of debate that we're in that's a bit, there, there is three in 10 who are or have been sort of hard, hard over of Americans, but there's a middle ground of people that are engageable on this. And it just seems to me we need political leadership of diverse identities coming forward and talking in a different fashion about what the threats are that we face and what the, uh, what the requirements are to protect our populations in a much better way. Joseph. Um, I'll take two. I think on the near term, we need to stop doing really bad things like moving people into harm's way. So there's a basket of stuff we can do to reform property insurance markets so we're not subsidizing climate risk still today. Um, I think there, the U.S. government has you know, a variety of resilient standards flying around different agencies, some harmonization there, and in like a near-term sense would actually do a lot of good in helping the federal government in its efforts for, uh, with societal resilience. When it comes to, to mitigation and reducing emissions domestically, I join the chorus. I think permitting reform is the most important thing we can do to help enable the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the bipartisan infrastructure law to allow us to build the system that will deliver cleaner and, and more, more electrons to people as we decarbonize. And lastly, internationally, we got to find a way to get a lot more financing flowing to developing countries to show the same opportunity of investments into solar and wind and batteries and all the things that we're starting to really like here in the U.S. And that's a project that we've been working on together that should come out soon. But I think that is going to be a key point of discussion at COP, and it's going to be one of the key challenges we face over the next 10 years. So I will say we're, we're just about at time. Um, if you would have asked me a few months ago for my wish list, um, those wishes would have been partially realized by this event. <laughs> One wish would have been to have some of these kind of interdisciplinary conversations around climate and also to have kind of calm, reasoned, fact-based discussions um, because there is no single solution. This is a very complicated problem and it's gonna require a lot of collaboration and a lot of kind of calm voices. So I appreciate all of you for participating in this. I wanna just recognize this is really Steve Morrison's brainchild um, in doing this conversation and um, doing it, I should have said up front, with support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the work that he's doing with the Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. So this conversation is the first of many more to come. We have a whole slate of really expert um, regional uh, folks that I think would be very good and anxious to participate in this conversation. So, um, so stay tuned. Um, thanks to all of you for doing this, and uh, we'll hope to see all of you soon. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit CSIS.com 
www.ghostbusters.org.